0: Well, Capital Yarns listeners, I have to warn you this month, as you might have guessed from the uh, lack of happy-go-lucky theme music to start the show, this month we have something a little different. It just seemed like the right time of year to tell you a truly terrifying story, a story featuring my uncle, a story that may very well be true, a story which includes a goon bag, a broken window, and neon lights. I should tell you, this is definitely not A podcast for children or those easily scared. It's fitting that a storm rages outside while I'm recording this. You see, shortly after my uncle died, I found papers and notes strewn around his bedroom. He was a research scientist at the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, otherwise known as the CSIRO, here in Canberra. I believe he left them there for a purpose, to tell the true story of his death. By the time I read the papers, he had been cremated, and the authorities wouldn't respond to my pleadings to investigate his death further. It seems I have no choice but to speak publicly about those papers, so you can make your own mind up. The first papers I found strewn in his bedroom were budget papers from the Commonwealth Government, June 1955. There's an item highlighted, Ghost Bat Virus Research... $1 $1 million. The papers say the Commonwealth Government has allocated $1 million for the CSI Road to research a solution to the impact of a virus spread through livestock in Northern Australia, believed to be caused by ghost bat bites. The virus does initially kill livestock, the papers go on, but causes them to behave erratically and in some cases in a predatory state. The papers say this research will look more into the causes and treatments of the virus, including how to better control the ghost bat plague currently engulfing the Northern Territory in Queensland. The ghost bat, otherwise known as Macroderma gigis, also known as the false vampire bat, is native to Australia. The papers say it's been suggested that increased light pollution, particularly the use of neon signs, has driven the bats out of major centres and towards darker farmland. So, it seems my uncle was working on a cure for a strange virus spread by vampire bats in Northern Australia and elsewhere in the world. The next paper I want to share with you is a ministerial brief dated 17th of July, 1955 to the Minister for Industry and Science. The action officer is listed as James Levi, Special Office for Ghost Bat Research. The classification, top secret. The brief says... It is proposed that the bulk of the Ghost Bat Research Fund be provided to the Pest Eradication Area of CSIRO. The head of the area, Dr Raymond Caposi, is an expert on the use of species-specific viruses. Initial research undertaken by others at CSIRO suggests the Ghost Bat Virus, or GBV, is incurable once a subject is infected. At current projections, the virus will have spread through half of the population of the Northern Territory in Queensland by the end of the decade. Research from Stanford University in the United States and Oxford in the United Kingdom indicates they are grappling with a similar virus and working jointly on a cure. We understand that research has also been undertaken in Moscow and Bucharest, although government scientists there are forbidden from sharing their findings with the West. As a cure remains unlikely, Dr Kaposi recommends prevention through the eradication of infected subjects. The next paper I want to share with you is a file note, dated 1 February 1956 by... Raymond Kaposi My uncle I have made significant progress on my research While I have been troubled by where it may lead My hypothesis is that we can use the beast's bloodthirsty nature against them Fittingly, I believe a carefully diagnosed countervirus is the answer With the right construction, such a virus could significantly impact upon the beast population Without harming carriers in any way It could be released into the population and lay dormant until the subject is attacked. I then expect the virus to travel quickly through the beast population through mating. I hope such a virus, if administered in a small dose, might also provide human subjects with some immunity from GBV. Given the beast's dislike of sunlight, I call my new virus daylight. Only I at the CSIRO know the true form of my research. My assistants and colleagues continue to believe we are researching the impact of GBV on cattle. Today I discovered Daylight Works. Several weeks after being exposed, only once, and a ghost bat's autoimmune system has become severely compromised. The bat is very ill and will die in the coming days. His former supernatural strength and incredible immune system apparently defeated. I expect the virus to have the same impact on the beast's. This note suggests that whatever beasts are infected with the bat virus obtain supernatural strength. It seems also that my uncle did indeed develop a countervirus for whatever the bats were spreading. He called it daylight. The next paper is a memo nineteen sixty four again from Raymond Capozzi, to Jim Jim, it is too soon to be testing daylight in the field. I do not understand the rush. While we have made some progress on protecting carriers, these tests are only preliminary. There is still a substantial risk that carriers will suffer the same symptoms as beasts. There are so many areas of daylight to still determine. If we had the data from the communist countries, we might know more. I am hopeful an old colleague in Bucharest may be able to smuggle something out. Until they are much like a human in the bats environment, we are fumbling in the dark. Please, old friend, do not risk our entire endeavour by releasing daylight before we know its true impact. This correspondence suggests my uncle was concerned about rushing the daylight cure out until its effects on humans were understood. The next file note is from two years later, again from Roman Kaposi. Today I confronted Jim about his plans to release daylight into the human population to fight the beasts. Jim, can't you see you're risking humankind even more, I pleaded. Jim put his head in his hands, his voice muffled as he spoke through his desperation. ''Have you actually seen a beast, Ray?'' he asked, so quietly I strained to hear. I shook my head. Jim abruptly stood up, pushing a button on his desk pager as he did. ''Sal, tell the lab guys at the hill I'm coming over. I'll be there in five. he said into the device. ''There is a lab on the hill?'' I asked Jim, perplexed, walking quickly to keep up with him. He already grabbed his jacket and was exiting the office. Capitol Hill? Where the Parliament is supposed to be built?'' Not so much on it, Ray, more in it, he replied. Moments later, we were walking briskly from the Secretariat office blocks across King Edward Terrace and towards Parliament House. However, when we arrived, rather than entering through the main entrance, Jim led me down a flight of stairs and began manly unlocking and relocking countless doors. We made our way down more dark and foreboding stairwells and were soon in the bowels of the building, deep below our nation's Parliament. I became aware of shouting and screaming of all varieties wafting towards us, growing louder, until he finally invited me to go down a long, narrow corridor full of glass-panelled cells. Oh, the horrors I saw in that corridor. Cage upon cage of wretched creatures of all size and manner, most writhing and screaming in agony. Each time I paused to stare at these mutated animals Jim would urge me on, Jim, how is it I didn't know about this place? There is more research underway than just yours, Ray. He responded cryptically. What I saw in the final cell disturbed me the most and will haunt me until my final days. In it, a human man knelt in the corner with his head down. He was completely naked, but despite his crouched stake, his muscular form was obvious. Jim, what are you doing to that poor man? I asked. ''That's no man,'' Jim whispered. ''I obviously have to show you what we're truly dealing with.'' He reached into a large plastic container next to him and produced a bag. ''I thought at first it was a bag from a cask of wine, what my nephew described to me once as a goon bag. It took me a while to process that the red substance within it was not wine, but blood.'' ''This bag contains daylight, Ray,'' Jim said, opening a trapdoor at the bottom of the cell and tossing the bag into the cage.'' He quickly closed the door. At the sight of the bag, the creature's demeanour changed completely. He lifted his head from his knees and I was finally able to see his face. Although this thing no longer resembled a human sufficiently to be called he. Its features were elongated as though the face had been pulled downwards. Its ears were pointed to a sharp tip and its eyes were closed to thin slits. In short, it appeared as much gargoyle as man. The beast leapt towards the bag, viciously biting into it and gorging on the blood that emerged. It arched its head back as it did so, attempting to squeeze out every last drop. And doing so, the thick, congealed substance began to run down its naked, muscular body. Soon its mouth and chest were stained red. Blood still smeared around its mouth, it turned and met my gaze. And smiled. In a flash, it had leapt to the glass, smashing its body against it. I can smell you new one it yelled I jumped back in horror and fear but Jim stood motionless this is what we are fighting Ray but I began trying to regain my composure think about the risk of human infection how will you dispense it we have to fight this somehow you always knew this wasn't about bats and cattle these beasts have fed upon us and mutated us for millennia I realized Jim was avoiding my final question How will you dispense it, Jim? I assume you're not going to throw bags of blood around. Jim sighed. Not exactly, Ray. We are all going to be the bags. That record from my uncle is amongst the most disturbing things I found. It suggests the bat virus had turned a human into some sort of monster. It seems James Levi also decided to feed the beast my uncle's daylight virus to see if that would reverse the effects on the beast. Later that year, 1 December 1966, there is another memo, this time apparently from Jim. Ray, for the sake of whatever is left of our friendship, I urge you to be careful, it says. They are everywhere, within government, courts, police, private industry. They are immortal and strong and have quietly taken over human society, even through gruesome feeding or turning. Now that you know truly what we are dealing with, you must be careful. I don't know how but they have the ability to learn things, find out what we are doing. They may come for you, particularly if they know you are working on a cure. This suggests my uncle was working on a cure. I assume this is a cure for the daylight virus he invented. But why would he want to cure the counter-virus he invented to fight the bats and the monsters they created? There is a gap in the papers after this one. And as far as I can piece them together... The next relevant is a fax from the 12th of January 1978, again from Raymond Capozzi. Jim, I know you're opposed to my work developing a cure for daylight, it reads, but I have no choice. It is spreading viciously through the human population. My latest research says it is likely to strike down humans in exactly the same way as the vampires. We are obviously genetically closer to the beasts than we may like to admit. This is the first time my uncle or James used the term vampire, but I'd already come to think of the monsters they described in that way. This seems to explain why he was working on a cure for daylight. It was striking down humans in the same way it attacked the vampires, hurting them instead of saving them. Again, there is a significant gap in the papers, and the next one I can find is an email from James Levi, presumably the Jim my Uncle Raymond referred to in his earlier papers. It reads, I am too sick and do not have long to go. I wanted to reach out to you to say sorry before it was too late. I know you feel guilty, but you shouldn't. It was the government, and specifically my decision, to release the cure to the general population. Yes, it is true, many innocent people have fallen ill and died as a result. I am certainly not innocent, but fittingly, it is likely that daylight will take me too. However, my friend, we cannot lose sight of the fact that daylight works. We have finally struck back at the vampires. Many of the people that have died would have been slaughtered or turned by the beasts. I also understand that the anti-retroviral research is making significant inroads. You may not need to find a cure for daylight in the human population after all. It was your obsession for cure that drove you from the CSIRO. Don't let the obsession drive you from anything else in your life. A year later, there was an email from Raymond Kaposi to Jim. Jim, they know. Somehow they know I've been working on the cure for daylight. Two of the most vicious beasts came to visit me today. They tried to hide themselves, but I knew their true form. Colleagues in Sophia have reported the same frightening visits. I'm sure they have some way of infiltrating the human world. My conscience demands that I find a true cure for daylight. I've unleashed this horror on the human world. I must correct it. I will not rest until I do, or until the vampires have taken me. I will do everything in my power to stop them getting their hands on the cure, unless it proves the only manner of distribution. I hope you are getting better. Stay safe. This suggests the vampires knew that my uncle was working on a cure for daylight. Perhaps they thought the cure would prevent its effects on them as well as humans. I found a cassette tape amongst the papers. Undated, but I think it probably fits into the chronology around this time. I will play it for you. I believe it's my Uncle
1: Raymond. I may finally have made some progress on a cure, but I cannot be sure of the impact upon human or beast. I dare not test it on any other poor creature. I have done enough experimenting already. It seems the only possible redemption lies in my own blood. If I can ever undo what I have done, then I must undo it myself. I will affect myself with daylight and then, once I know my immune system is compromised, will administer the cure. Only then will I truly know.
0: I found a scribble note, 12th of February 2006. I believe this is the day my uncle died. It reads, night has fallen and they have come. There are countless beasts outside my door, wailing and screaming at me to let them in. Frighteningly, there was a Nokia phone sitting with his papers and I managed to find an audio recording on it. I warn you, this is not for the faint of heart.
1: You have the cure, old man. We know you have the fucking cure. I am too weak to shout back. Nearly too weak to even speak. I think it's important, however, that the world knows where virus started and that I have no idea where it may end. Too late for me, but I believe I have perfected the daylight cure. This mutated daylight will reverse the effects of daylight on humans, but will continue to strike down the vampires in an even more powerful way than before. I believe this mutated form of daylight will not only remove the vampires' strength, but kill them. They've just broken one of the windows by throwing their bodies against it and the creature is leering at me. Her almost human face grotesquely altered by bloodshot eyes, pointed ears and red stained sharp fangs. They've given up any pretense of hiding their true selves to me now. We can't come in unless you invite us. So let us fuck in. The beasts are changing their approach now. I see one of their bloodthirsty eyes through my blinds, staring at me in bed, speaking seductively. We want to work with you, old man. We can make you immortal, you know. Give us the cure, and you can live forever. What sweet irony, I can choose the manner of my death. To die at the hands of the virus I created, or at the teeth of the creatures I created the virus to kill.